Welcome to episode 26, The Truth About the Judeo-Christian Tradition. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you are on Facebook or Twitter and the topic of tariffs, nullification, healthcare reform, the government shutdown, or the Judeo-Christian tradition come up, please share the Truth Quest episode with them. Or if you come across an article related to one of the episodes on a website that allows comments, copy and paste the URL of the episode right into the comment box. Also, if you are listening on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down and click on 5-star rating. And if you're feeling generous, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link to the patronage page. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music, or it is also available on Stitcher, Spotify, or Podbean. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. As you know, every five or six episodes, I publish an episode with a Christian apologetic topic. As I thought ahead to the publication of this week's episode, I noticed that it would fall on the week of Christmas. I glanced up at my bookshelf and pulled down my copy of In Defense of Faith by David Brog. I realized the message he presents in that book was a perfect foundation from which to base this week's episode on. Brog describes his book's purpose as a rebuttal to the claim that people of faith are responsible for our greatest sorrows, bloodshed, war, and hatred. His primary message is the Judeo-Christian idea or tradition or philosophy, I use all those terms interchangeably, has been an overwhelming force for good throughout history, especially over the last 100-150 years. It has been a source of compassion, humanity, and human rights. So what is this Judeo-Christian idea? In a nutshell, it is the belief in equality and the sanctity of all humans combined with the call to love one another. It's the idea that all humans are made in the image of God and therefore are worthy of respect. It introduced an ethic of love forcing us to look beyond our immediate family to the world around us. It is the idea of sanctity and equality of all humans. Everyone has intrinsic value, regardless of their health, their wealth, or utility to society. We are to treat each other with love. This philosophy was in place prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ via the Torah and the lives lived by Jews. However, Christ took it to another level, so to speak. Brog defines it this way, quote, Christianity not only shares Judaism's core morality, but has been a most effective marketer thereof. Jesus took the message of love from the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish sages and preached it with a sharp focus and a transformative passion. Jesus spread the Jewish idea of love, not only with his eloquent words, but also with his, by his sacrificial deeds. Jesus gave Jewish love a face in a narrative. In so doing, he led much of the world to embrace it. End quote. If you spend any time in the Bible, the Old or New Testament, you can easily confirm Brog's claim, as you will find repeated mentions of widows, orphans, strangers, society's cast-offs like tax collectors, Samaritans, lepers. The broader point that Brog makes is that the abandonment of the Judeo-Christian values explains most of the world's travesties, from the ancient practice of infanticide to modern-day abortion to the treatment of American Indians, slavery, the practice of genocide, communism, the Holocaust, Pol Pot, and the persecution of blacks in America. Before we dive in, there is a broader point I want to make about the idea of right and wrong, good and bad, truth and untruth. 
How do we know that slavery, genocide, killing babies, persecution or discrimination and the like are bad? We know this because God instilled a conscience in all of us. Human beings are hardwired knowing right from wrong. Just like you only know something is dirty by knowing what clean is, you know something is wrong because you know what right is. You know something is untrue because you are hardwired to know the truth. This hardwired conscious is encapsulated in the Judeo-Christian tradition. As we walk through these examples, you will notice that they all have one thing in common, the dehumanization of the victims. Why is it necessary to dehumanize the victims in order to perpetrate wrong against them? After all, there has always been evil in the world. I would argue that the difference is that since the introduction of the Judeo-Christian tradition to the world, people are more aware of their conscience, morality, and right and wrong. You can't justify mass murder because some ancient god or idol must be appeased. We know it is wrong to kill fellow human beings, but the Judeo-Christian idea takes it a step further by codifying the idea of the equality of everyone, worthy of respect because they are made in the God's image. Mass murderers have to combat this line of thinking by dehumanizing those they wish to commit genocide against. Criminals do the same thing. They look at their victims as less than human or make excuses. Human traffickers and those involved in the slave trade do the same thing. Abortion advocates dehumanize the baby in the womb to justify their positions. They call it a fetus or a clump of cells. They make excuses about the woman's right to define her own health care or to take care of her own body, all to justify their actions. There is a purposeful denial of thought about the victims of crime. I spoke extensively about this in episode number two, The Truth About Abortion, where I explained that the question, what about the baby, is rarely answered by those in favor of the practice. It makes them uncomfortable. However, it is in line with the Judeo-Christian tradition. By ignoring or refusing to ask the question, what about the victim, perpetrators are able to leave the Judeo-Christian tradition and morality at the door. So let's examine some of these travesties I mentioned earlier, starting with infanticide. Infanticide was normal practice in ancient Greece and during Roman times. Female babies were routinely killed, as were babies with infirmities. This is still common in China today. However, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, they discovered, much to their amazement, a group of people who valued human life. These people did not accept any rationales for the practice of infanticide. Arguments that another mouth to feed was too burdensome, or the inferiority of female babies were non-starters because of their belief that human life was precious, worthy of respect, and love. So what about the American Indians? In America, over 100 million native Indians died or were killed through war, massacres, and disease by Europeans. Now granted, disease plagued the tribes who did not have the antibodies to combat the new diseases, but there was plenty of murder to go along with it. In order to justify the killings of Indians, advocates argued that they were savages or less than human. That even goes for icons like Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Theodore Roosevelt, who all called for the killing of Indians at some point. How is this possible? Greed explained most of it. Greed for gold, greed for land, equated to the lost morality. It equated to the abandonment of the Judeo-Christian tradition. When you reflect back at this time in history, you will notice that the only people to rise up in defense of the Indians were Christians. Why would these missionaries work to protect a group of people who did not even share their religious beliefs? What about genocide? The 20th century was a century littered by incidents of genocide. 
Almost all were motivated in one form or another by the rejection of the Judeo-Christian idea, and almost all were justified along race or class or nationalistic lines or due to communism. The German army slaughtered the Herios and Namas people in southwest Africa. That was a racially motivated killing. The Turkish slaughter of the Armenians was nationalism and racism. The Holocaust was nationalism and racism. Stalin's genocide of the Ukrainian peasants was communism, class warfare, and nationalism. Mao's genocide of the Chinese peasantry was communism and class warfare. Pol Pot's genocide of Cambodian city dwellers was communism and class warfare. And the former Yugoslavia genocides were driven by Serbian nationalism. All of these incidents were a rejection or ignoring of the Judeo-Christian idea. In order to successfully execute genocide and not be rejected by the masses, you must first dehumanize the victims. You portray them as the enemy or as non-human, not worthy of compassion, protection, or love, but just the opposite, worthy of contempt and death. In other words, you must completely strip the Judeo-Christian principles of equality and the worthiness of love from the target group. The Nazis had the Jews, the Soviets and Chinese communists had their peasants, Pol Pot had his city dwellers. What about slavery? Slavery was normal in societies all over the globe since the beginning of time. In the 1780s, it is estimated that 75% of the world's population lived in bondage of some form or another. There was Russian serfdom, there was Indian debt bondage, African slavery in Muslim lands, Africans enslaved fellow Africans, and Americans obviously enslaved Africans. But I want to focus on slavery in Britain and America, since you could argue that these enlightened societies should have known better. Here again, we see the greed drove behavior. The gold was largely gone at this point, and the land was largely allocated, so the next place where great wealth could be achieved in America was in agriculture. In order to accomplish that, you needed a source of cheap or free labor. Here again, dehumanization of the victims was required in order to circumvent the Judeo-Christian ethic. Slavery proponents argue that Africans were inferior or less than human. Who aggressively opposed slavery? Christians, who were driven by the idea that every human is made in God's image and worthy of love and respect. Abolition efforts started in Britain with the Society for the Abolition of the African Slave Trade. William Wilberforce introduced the first bill to abolish the slave trade in the House of Commons in 1787. He was blocked year after year by various means, but he reintroduced the bill year after year. It was finally approved in 1807. In 1833, the law outlawing slavery was passed. All right, so what about the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition? Mainstream media and non-Christians are often quick to judge Christianity. They happily point to the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition of examples of Christians not practicing what they preach, but given the countless centuries since these events occurred, the claims have little, if any, credibility. Nevertheless, these events did happen, but as with most things, it's not as simple as you may be led to believe. It was not a bloodthirsty event led by Bible thumpers looking to kill non-Christians. David Brog explains, The Crusades took place during an era of continuous warfare between Christian and Muslim powers that shared a long and rapidly shifting border. In the course of these conflicts, the Muslims were typically the aggressor and were almost always the victor. You've got Byzantine Emperor Alex I sending an urgent appeal to Pope Urban II asking for help to defend the capital of Christendom. That became the First Crusade. When it comes to the Spanish Inquisition, certainly it took on an anti-Semitic theme, 
but that doesn't mean that Christianity as a whole should be condemned because a few members of the club went off the reservation centuries ago. When I hear people railing against Christianity, I often think, do these people make the same claims about other religions whose members do bad things? Why is Christianity held to a different standard? Better yet, why are all Christians responsible for the rare occasions when one of them does something in opposition to what Christianity stands for? The truth is, and this is the TruthQuest podcast, the truth is that with over 2 billion Christians on the planet, remarkably few acts of violence in the furtherance of the faith are perpetrated by Jesus' followers. However, if any one of us ever steps out of line, headlines and talking heads make sure to point it out. Probably the most prolific of these incidents was the series of attacks on abortion providers in the U.S. in the mid-1990s. The only relevant questions you have to ask in regards to these incidents are, was the act celebrated by Christians or Jews? Or was the, was the actor embraced by Christians and Jews? Certainly you can find a handful who were willing to do so, but there was no large-scale rationalization for such acts. As a matter of fact, there was large-scale rejection and condemnation and denunciation of the acts. Why is that? There is moral clarity. Because the Judeo-Christian idea values all human life, including doctors who perform abortions. While there are few acts of violence perpetrated by Christians and Jews in the furtherance of their faith, the same cannot be said by followers of the religion of Islam. While the acts themselves are bad, what makes the distinction between Islam and those who subscribe to a Judeo-Christian philosophy is the lack of large-scale rejection, condemnation, and denunciation of the acts by Muslim leaders and mainstream media outlets. On the contrary, we usually hear nothing from them or a plethora of excuses and rationalizations explaining why the acts occurred. It's quite remarkable. You want to know who is going to perpetrate the next atrocity? Look no further than those who mock Christianity and or the Judeo-Christian philosophy. You want to know which political leaders are setting the stage for one of their members to commit acts of violence? Look no further than those that mock Christianity and or the Judeo-Christian philosophy. These are warning signs that should not be ignored. It doesn't matter if you are a practicing Jew or a follower of Jesus. You can be a follower of Muhammad, a Hindu, an atheist, a naturalist, an agnostic, or practicing New Age fill-in-the-blank philosophy. But if you mock or chastise a philosophy that is a force for good in the world, there's something dark going on in your heart. That darkness needs to be evaluated. I get it that non-Christians point out the hypocrisy displayed in the lives of so-called practicing Christians, but that is not the point. The the point is Christians do not claim to be perfect. As a matter of fact, the whole point of Christianity is that we are flawed by nature. Any Christian or Jew that claims to be perfect is misguided, to say the least. As I conclude this episode, I want to warn my fellow Judeo-Christian brothers and sisters. Be aware of apathy. It remains one of, the, of mankind's greatest weaknesses. Consider all the atrocities outlined in this episode. Infanticide and abortion, the treatment of the American Indians slavery, genocide, the Holocaust, and racial discrimination. The church as a whole often remains silent. They did not feel the need to stand up for the weak or the minorities in any wholesale manner. Certainly Christians led the revolt against many of these practices, but why didn't the churches stand up in mass and fight? Was it out of apathy? Was it out of hypocrisy? Regardless of your religious affiliation or lack thereof, an appreciation and application of the lessons presented and taught in the Bible will go a long way in righting the wrongs in the world. Don't spend all of your time looking at the actors. Look at the script as a whole. It's the message, not the messenger. It's the old story of losing the forest through the trees. 
don't focus on the wrong things, like the Catholic pre-sex scandals, mega church scandals, the hypocrisy that you see. I get it, but you are missing the point. You are missing the message.